0: The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. All right, guys, let's work our way into treatment. So managing these patients with heart failure, what are we actually going to do? A couple of things for me to basically think about this just kind of wrapping it up you're trying to reduce oxygen demand so the heart's not working any harder and the cardiac workload trying to knock it out a little bit down and then again we've mentioned it a couple of times make sure they don't have an initial insult or limit that initial insult if it's sepsis or what other kind of thing may be going on or treat the underlying cause so you mentioned antibiotics earlier getting early being early and proactive with those those kinds of things to kind of make sure you're knocking out anything else to mitigate the heart failure and make sure you're not continuing non- down a spiral. So from an EM side of the street and basic management, um, whether you're an EMT, paramedic, nurse, LPM, what have you, once you assess your patient and you figure out, hey, we got a problem, working on that treatment algorithm. Oxygen, do they need it? For y'all's indications for oxygen, it's not always needed. That's some a common misconception. Hey, they have heart failure. They always need a whole bunch of oxygen. They need high flow or they need BiPAP. They automatically need it. Sometimes these patients, they live with a set of 90, 90 or 91, and we're okay with that because that's where they live. You put them too much throw them, they have COPD as well or something else. You may tip them off the edge or something. Where do they normally live? Try to figure out, hey, what does this patient normally look like? Do they normally have a, hey, they have this wonderful, this is like rare, but they have that wonderful diary that says, hey, my sat today was 91%, my sat today was 945 percent Every once in a while you get those. It's very rare, but they're nice. You can also trend, hey, where did this patient start? So they're normally their sats are 98, or they, last time they went to the doctor and they drew an ABG or whatever, and everything looked like this. And then the last five days, we watched it go from 98, 96, 95, 94. It uh, tells you a whole lot of things about what the heart's looking at. Again, that trend of vital signs. So oxygen therapies, you've got cannulas. Now we have high flow. Thank you, COVID, for shipping that out to everybody and their mama. CPAP, BiPAP, and intubation if we have to go there. What are y'all's triggers for using high flow and CPAP? I think everybody's pretty comfortable putting somebody on a cannula or a non-rebreather. As far as using high flow and, and heart failure, what do y'all think about it?
1: Look at it from a worker breathing. If they're really, really working, we need to get more aggressive and maximize oxygen delivery. Now, you could still argue, does this patient need this concentration of oxygen? They may just need high flow from a pressure standpoint as opposed to an oxygenation standpoint, just for the pressure gradient across the lungs from a VQ mismatch perspective. I'm in agreement that I don't think everybody needs this huge concentration of oxygen, but having been there, that pressure helps. <laughs> it really does.
2: Yeah, and, and Mark said it perfectly. Um, so I'll, I'll do this. We'll paint a picture of a patient that Mark's going to put on BiPAP so, and, and that we can talk about treatment for. So if you have a... 65-year-old male, history of heart failure, takes his medications. His, you know, you guys are called in. His family says he hasn't been walking around. You do your, you know, he's sitting up in bed the last few nights. He has PND, meaning he wakes up from sleep short of breath, and now he's just lethargic. You guys go and evaluate him. He's leaning forward, like we talked about on our exam. His extremities are cool. He has a narrow pulse pressure. He has ascites. And he's breathing, you know, thirty times a minute, um, and and this is sitting up, leaning forward, and you know he looks bad. You know, this is um, you have a chest X ray that confirms, you know, a lot of significant pulmonary edema. This is where some PEEP is is vital. You know, BiPAP, um, if available, is 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 a great tool, and even you know a high flow gives you some certain amount of PEEP. But that that positive pressure can really help. Um, push some of the fluid off of the lungs and create a more favorable pressure gradient, like you mentioned, for oxygenation and to just provide the patient with more comfort. Um, One caveat is RV failure. And I know you all know this well, but in a patient with, you know, let's say you throw the probe on, the LV is underfilled, it's small, and you have a blown open RV, you know, intubation can be extremely uh, dangerous because when this patient gets... um, all of that positive pressure, whether that be from, you know, excessive BiPAP or intubation, um, that RV is going to struggle more fighting against such a high pressure. And so we definitely in patients with RV failure want to be careful with, you know, with our PEEP. We want to have lower pressures. With LV failure, just like you said, that pressure gradient is extremely helpful. Um, And then agree with everything else. You know, we don't, I don't, you know, oxygen doesn't need to be a prophylactic measure. if They're satting fine and they look comfortable. Probably it's it's not going to be your your cure, um, but definitely hypoxic work of breathing is through the window, and they got pulmonary uh, edema. Then BiPAP is a great tool. That that positive pressure can can definitely help the patient out right off the bat.
1: In the we have seen a lot of RV failure that may live in a little bit of RV failure every day that within the past two years with COVID, um, we saw a lot of earlier intubated patients than we normally did. And you really, really had to work hard with the ventilator to make it work. And we used gallons and gallons of milrinone, trying to dilate these folks back out Mm -hmm. to get some of that flow from the right side. I remember, I think I've seen more in the past two years of RV, intubated RV failure. And I think it's secondary to people jumping on stuff earlier in the whole COVID thing. Um, for years, the traditional thing typically was huge LV failure that would wind up intubated. And in this case, how many of these patients were actually COVID or not? I think it was more of RV issues slash RV on top of COPD. But we saw a lot of that and where these people did not improve after their initial intubation. You know, we would get there and well, we intubated them and they got worse. And exactly the picture you just painted of, okay, now we need to manage these pressures better um both from a ventilatory standpoint and from a cardiac output, um pulmonary vasodilation.
2: Yeah, and that's standpoint. that's if you got to see them there. You know, the other thing with these patients with bad RV failure is induction. You know, how, that's, do, you, how do you
0: induce them? That's,
2: it's extremely dangerous. You you want to have some kind of push dose pressers or pressors and fluids available to you in case they become extremely hypotensive and start to start to, you know, things start to go downhill, then a, a presser, you know, and you want to be prepared for that from the front end, not not be reactive to it. And just some little
0: differentiated between left and right. Some some of the little subtle cues, again, most common cause of right heart failure is usually left, but do they have JVD? Do they have all that ascites or all that about jugular reflex stuff? Look at them, do they have that right heart failure just from an initial assessment to say, hey, that from a treatment standpoint, all right, I got to watch peep. I got to watch interthoracic pressure. A lot of, a common misconception with heart failure patients is, okay, well, they got a pressure that's really, really great. Cool. It's 180 over whatever. Look at their po- narrow pulse pressure. I'm glad we brought that up earlier. If their narrow pulse pressure is really low, so if it's, okay, great, They have blood pressure 180 over 130 or You know, something that's super high, okay, great. They don't have a really good cardiac output. The inner thoracic pressure, it doesn't just push on their IVC, it pushes on their heart too. And so they can't contract and expand like they normally would. You worry about those patients, especially RV failure. You're pushing on that right ventricle, you just knock their cardiac output down. Getting back to our example with BiPAP, be mindful, even on BiPAP or CPAP, if you don't have BiPAP available to you. Be mindful of, hey, if this patient was in right heart failure, what kind of preemptive steps can I take? So do they have an IV or an IO or whatever you have access to them where they can get some fluids? Push dose pressors. Always in the back of your mind, I know we do it as resuscitationists, we do it very commonly. Hey, what's my epi, what's my vaso? What's, you know, if you're gonna use Levo or Neo or what, whatever it is in the back of my head, I can, you know, most of us haven't memorized, but all right, what am I gonna use? What's the best pressor for this patient? Especially on what kind of situation you present with. For BiPAP and CPAP, real quick before we get to the intubated patient stuff, as far as pressures and PEEP, if you've got a blood pressure that'll tolerate it, for Mark, what do you start with as far as your pressures? What do you try to put somebody on? I know there's no generic, every, every vent, me and you have talked this to death oh, in yeah. the office, but every patient's different. They're all tailored. If you've got somebody that's an exacerbation, they've got a good map and you're okay with it, what do you start with?
1: I would like to see a PEEP around 10 and then base your driving pressure on what they look like and kind of go up till you figure out where you're at. Um, A problem I have is often when you see someone on BiPAP, they'll start them out on 15 over 5. That's walking around pressures that we're generating right now. And none of us are in respiratory distress. So you're wasting their time your time everybody's time uh, i would think 20 over 10 just as a start and then look at the patient do they need more pressure are they tolerating this pressure is their hemodynamics tolerating this pressure most people i don't see people drop their blood pressure with a peep of less than 10 very rare so i think people get over concerned about that and A little bit of fluid will generally help them overcome it if that doesn't if that's not the case well then we move down more of an inotropic support line Um, but again I I think it all goes back to how
2: they tolerate it yeah exactly what what Mark said you know what's the patient looking like and how big are they (laughs) you know once again you're 6.5, I'm 5.5, five. I mean, we're going to have some differences in our in our respiratory drive and tidal volumes and total lung capacity. And so, you know, you may have a really small, old, old, you know, elderly patient that's doing great on 10 over 5, you know, uh, you may have a much larger patient with a PCO2 of, you know, 79, uh, morbidly obese, and that has a ton of volume on them and you need to use higher driving pressures. And then you may have a patient with RV failure where your peep and driving pressures need to be a little more conservative. So, you know, it's there's no, um, there's no, I don't think there's an exact number that's, you know, you just have to evaluate the patient and trend which way they're going. Um, The other thing that you all brought up is you brought up the blood pressure. So, you know, after, after, you know, you look at your kind of ABCs and, you know, now you've got oxygenation handled or if they're, you know, or they're intubated, it's, It's, for me, is afterload reduction. Um, So even, you know, a lot of times you can, you know, you can manage the patient with afterload reduction and never use inotropes. So if you have an LV, going back to the patient, we described this elderly male, you know, now he's breathing very fast. You put him on BiPAP. He clearly has an IVC that's three centimeters, chest x-ray with pulmonary edema, cool extremities, um, and his blood pressure is 130 right, systolics in the 130s, MAP is let's say 70, 80. You know, this patient, uh, and, and you put the probe on and the ZF looks like it's 10 to 15%. That blood pressure has to come down. Um, that's the first thing I'll do. And and there's a, there's a variety of ways. Which is
0: a common conception. Oh, great, they're 130 over 90. That's, man, they're hunky-dory, I'm good. That's where they're supposed to be, they're hypertensive, this, that, and other. No,
2: no I, I often tell, I'll tell my patients, you know, imagine you have a pump you know a small little water pump or something or i described a jackson water system but let's say you have a (laughs) pump that's trying to pump water through um a pipeline and the pressure in that pipeline is very elevated and the pump is very weak what's going to happen that pump is going to struggle to push forward and so we need to decrease the pressure in that pipeline and that's the blood pressure and so with a patient whose EF is, you know, moderate to severely reduced and they're in shock with the blood pressure of 130, I mean they're in a, you know, adrenergic state where their body's trying to compensate but it's maladaptive, you know, this this is not working out. And so, you know, right off the bat, IV agents that I like are nitropresside or nipride. Um, nipride works works very very quickly. And it, and when you turn it off, the effect Dissipates very, very quickly. And the dose is also extremely small. So, um, if, if you guys just Google the Cleveland Clinic Protocol, they have a great protocol on afterload reduction. Um, but Nipride is a great agent, very low volume, just drops of it will make a big difference. Um, and then night IV Nitro. So, those are generally my. Um, IV agents, nitro for to get arterial af, you know afterload reduction, arterial vasodilation. You generally need higher doses. Usually you get venodilation at the lower doses, um, and then PO agents that I'll use if they're able to swallow and I have time. Um, captopril works great, works very quickly. I'll give them and you know assuming their renal function is normal in this case, but captopril, um, isosorbide and hydralazine. Those are kind of my three PO agents and um, the good thing about all of those is you can give a dose and after two hours you can go ahead and double the dose and give them another dose. So you're not sitting around waiting. Um, Oh blood pressure still 120 let me just see what happens for six hours. No those PO agents you can double up the dose after the two hour mark and then keep going up every six hours. So you can be very aggressive. Cardine is also a great IV agent. So Right off the bat, dropped their blood pressure. When the you know, if you reduce the afterload and at the same time give them something like a high dose of IV Lasix. So if I know the patient's taking forty PO daily, they're going to get eighty IV from me at least. You know, you need to you need a double or triple Some their home dose. dose in there, man? <laughs> at the minimum, you know, um, you know, I usually these patients are getting one twenty or more. It just depends on their renal function, and how they're looking. So. Um, a lot of
0: people will double it the first time, wait four hours, see how the urine output looks like, and then.
2: Them yeah, you have to continue double. to monitor, and so you know you reduce their afterload, give them a big dose of IV Lasix, and IV Lasix also works, or IV you know bumex, it's another great agent. So there's there's a lot, but whatever IV diuretic, Lasix, furosemide also works in the in the lungs. And it'll help alleviate a lot of the symptoms patients are having. So when you give an IV dose of Lasix and the patient feels better, you're like, how'd that happen? Well, it also um, has receptors in the lungs that it works on, and so you'll notice with just the afterload reduction and the IV Lasix, they're gonna their renal perfusion pressure will improve, and they will 90% of the time the patient will have significant urine output, and their labs will start heading in the right direction and just from dropping the blood pressure. You know, I still try to maintain a MAP of 65, but I'll have a systolic that was 130, 140, 150 a few minutes ago, and I'll drop it down to 90 systolic. Um, patients mentating, fine, all right, I'll drop the systolic. MAP is still good. You've heard give me them say and, and you'll, I mean, just give them an hour on that BiPAP. I've, you know, just, uh, I think uh, just recently, you know, we, had, we were teaching some students, and we had a patient come in. Sitting upright, morbidly obese male, PCO2 was 90. Um, lactate was elevated. He was in LV failure. His blood pressure was super high, and everybody's like, let's intubate. I was like, let's.
0: Well, I, was, I was saying, let me stop you right there. That's that's a patient that a lot of people, whether you're listening or not, I've seen it over the years, tube them immediately. Yes. Like, hey, yeah, let's knee just jerk. drop. Yeah. Knee jerk, without even looking at anything else, the patient, you just talked about numbers alone. And their size, and they just said, "Okay, cool. They're automatically getting intubated. Don't even try one BIPAP. Don't try nothing else."
1: Well, and if they've got a CO two of ninety, and they're conversing with you and making sense, they live there.
0: Yeah. You Again, know. don't focus on the number. But
1: I want I want everybody to do one thing for me. I want you to hit rewind, and go back to when he said a blood pressure of one thirty over eighty, and in shock. And anybody that knows me has heard me say over the years for a million times, blood pressure does not define perfusion. And I mean he just nailed it.
0: Sorry, um, Can you I, know, so yes. thing, I think it's
1: funny you talk about the and I remember years ago, like we were talking off camera the before cath labs were interventional and before they were first line therapy, you're aggressive cardiologist? Stemmy came in, we gave TPA and we gave Captopril. And every one of them would tell us, hang nitro, whatever. These people would be, am I verging on moving towards cardiogenic shock? Like you're, you're class B, right? Mm-hmm. And give Captopril, hang nitro. If they're mentating, I want a systolic of 90. And I mean, you basically just drug these folks out and rewrote their orders in what you just said.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes a big difference. And this, this this, patient, you know, I was like, guys, just, you know, the room was full of 30 people, everyone's ready to intubate. And I was like, just give me one hour. And fast forward an hour, repeated an ABG PCO2 is 50s. The patient's blood pressure is in, I think, 85 to 90 systolic, a liter of urine output, and he's already laying back on the pillow on BiPAP now. So, you know, We recognize his work of breathing is is elevated. So we put him on BiPAP. He had pulmonary edema. So, you know, that's helping that process. Gave him a big dose of IV Lasix, but then got his blood pressure down. All of that previous stuff would have been pointless without reducing the workload on the heart by reducing the blood pressure. Um, And the other big thing is don't, you know, the heart rate is a compensatory mechanism. So these patients may have a heart rate of 130. They do not need a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker or a diltiazem drip. You know, I, I urge you guys to think twice before starting a patient with any history of heart failure on a diltiazem infusion because, or, or beta blockers because those are all negative inotropes. And uh, they're going to take contractility away from the heart. So you take away their one, comp, you know, cardiac output heart rate times stroke volume. Their stroke volume is gone. Their heart rate is up because they're trying to maintain. If their heart rate is knocked out, that's, they're going to crash. So I would not, you know, unless they're in some kind of tachyarrhythmia, SVT, you know, and that's the cause of, of their issues. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't focus on, on the heart rate. I would treat the blood pressure, I would decongest them, I would work on the BIPAP, oxygenation, and see how things improve.
0: You mean mm-hmm. the cocaine MI, you don't give three doses of metoprolol back to back? Uh, Not unless don't. you want it to
1: get real interesting. <laughs> but remember with the nitro, especially venous dilation versus arterial dilation, you're looking at the high doses. And you're standard nitro sublingual is 400 mics q5 minutes times three all right it's about a 98 percent bioavailability so you're looking at 80 mics a minute so when you hang that drill i start in a patient in heart failure i start nitro at 50 and go up from there don't be scared uh, we you've seen it they're in heart failure and we got them on nitro at five mics great. If we could squeeze the bottle, we would, but we'll just turn the (laughs) rate up, you know?
2: Yeah. And, and during this time, you know, so now, you know, we've got our patient on BiPAP, we've got them on, you know, we've given them IV Lasix or Bumex or whatever you're using. They're either going to A, have significant urine output and things will start trending in the right direction. And by trends, I mean their mental status um, you know, lower extremity edema is not a great, you know, great tool in, um, in terms of acute uh, treatment and looking at it, but their mixed venous will start improving, lactate starts clearing. And if it doesn't, then only do I start thinking about inotropes. Because, and with inotropes, we, you know, I'm specifically talking about dobutamine and milrinone, because those drugs are toxic. They can, they're proarrhythmogenic, you know, patients who are having a lot of PVCs, it can, can send them into uh, ventricular arrhythmias. And so those are, you know, I hold those in my back pocket for patients who really need it. But first line is, you know, BiPAP, afterload reduction, decongestion. Then if things are not working, the patient is still cool. Their urine output's still bad. Their lactate is still elevated. Their mixed venous is still low. They're still very lethargic. They can't talk to you. Then I start thinking about um, IV inotropes. And at this point, you know, I would once again really advise that the patient have an arterial line, and central venous access because it's going to help you greatly. Now, with with inotropes, there's there's nuances to both of them. Um, dobutamine is a beta agonist, so it's going to help the heart pump harder. You know, I usually start at a dose of five micrograms per kilogram per minute and go up from there up to ten. I've seen patients, you know, I've, you know, we moonlight around, I've seen patients on very high doses. And high doses of these inotropes can actually cause vasoplegia or more hypotension as they start building up. Um, so, you know, I usually start at 5. I work on getting the blood pressure down if I can, and I'll go from there. With milrinone, it, it will reduce blood pressure it will also help you know reduce pulmonary pressures to some degree so if they have rv failure it's a great drug but you know you have to be careful in renal dysfunction if a patient has renal dysfunction milrinone over you know several hours and days will also start to accumulate and cause um, systemic vasodilation and hypoperfusion so you know generally i'll use dobutamine in patients with renal failure, who most patients in acute cardiogenic shock are on, but that blood pressure needs to be low. If you have them on dobutamine and their blood pressure is 140, you're just you're, you're not going to get anywhere with that, um, along with all the other therapies we, we, we discussed.
0: I think it's something that I don't want to steal Mark's thunder, but the, 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 the dobutamine is. <laughs> we've, we've, ste-
2: we've
1: been stealing it. Yeah, <laughs> he, he's heard me say a lot of this stuff is. It's funny, it's almost like you're mimicking a lot of the stuff that I've told him over the years. When he first started, it's like, this is the way I like to decide this or that or whatever.
0: And a lot of it, you know, I'd take, okay, Mark said whatever. And then I'd learn about it and go read about it and whatever. Or anybody I was working with at the time. A lot of these conversations, we have a shift change every day and it overlaps for about 30 minutes. I usually get to work early, so it's a little bit longer. But those 30-minute conversations at shift brief we have... You know, whether it, in any air care basis, there's some of the best learning opportunities I've ever had. And it's because you have four people that are truly like-minded for the most part, but have different experiences and different understandings. Dibutamine for me, is very fortunate. One of the places I used to work had all those drugs. Didn't have Milrin on, but they had dibetamine on ambulance, which was kind of voodoo, honestly. Dibutamine I want to caution everybody with, it will throw somebody into VTAC. Especially when, when you start talking about pressors and onotropes together, especially. Caution people, anecdotally for me, I like exactly how you said to, be to me. Don't start it out high. Some people are like, hey, I want to, there's a couple of mindsets when you talk about onotropes and pressors. Do I want to establish perfusion and back off? Or do I want to kind of ease my way into it? Or depending on what the patient presentation is. A lot of the times, I'm a very proactive clinician a lot, and I will establish perfusion and back off. Dibutamine and milrinone are sometimes those the way those patients presents start off a little bit lower and then work my way up because you don't know how they're going to react. A, and if they've got a ticked off heart, uh, we've seen uh, me and Mark have walked in the door when I see you. I remember it to this day, patients having runs of VTAC, nobody recognizing it, and they had just started debutamine like 30 minutes before.
1: I'm a big established perfusion and back off, but I'm with you. Dibutamine, milrinone nipride those are three drugs that i'm very familiar with drugs but those are three that i'm legitimately scared of now that being said if i have a patient in heart failure and i need heart rate support i will lean towards dibutamine if i have a patient in heart failure and i'm i'm thinking uh, dilation is where i'm going i like milrinone better and I think a lot of that is anecdotal, experiential, whatever you want to call it, from arrhythmogenicity from the dibutamine as opposed to the milrinone. Now, that being said, it's been a long time since I've took some, took care of someone who's been on milrinone for a while. Mm-hmm. So I can't chime in on that side of it, but I have picked up a lot that are on have been on dibutamine for a while, and it's the same thing. There, a bunch of PVCs, and this is another area where your art line is just very beneficial. You see perfusion, 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 big huge beat, nothing, perfusion, perfusion, and the less ectopy, you, know, you don't want to knock a heart rate out because that's their compensatory mechanism. But if their heart rate is, let's say, 130, 140, and 30 to 40 of those are premature beats, then their perfusion rate is 100. So I'm I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in addressing it a different mechanism. But yeah, don't take the heart rate out. People will often get wrapped around the axle on the heart rate and want to address that occasionally the heart rate is the issue producing heart failure it definitely can do it but I think most of the heart failure we see the heart its not heart rate induced it's a heart rate compensatory side to Yeah, it.
2: And, and and then kind of just going on on the other side of the spectrum is let's say you have a patient with an EF of you know severely reduced ejection fraction same clinical picture we got them where we have them but their blood pressure is 80 to start with and you know that inotropes are now your only option. Well in that case I really like to have, a, um, I like to use vaso. Um, you know it's not going to make them excessively tachycardic and I like to kind of pair vaso with one of the inotropes. So I'll start vaso at 0.04 and then have either dobutamine or milrinone because that gives, these patients need blood pressure right. while you decongest them because that frank Starling curve has shifted so far the wrong direction that now we need to get some volume off so the heart's, you know, not stretched out before they can get good perfusion. And in that case, I'll use vaso and one of the inotropes it can be very helpful in that situation.
0: I think a lot of people also, you mentioned vaso, sometimes in the acute world, they don't have, vaso it's hard to come by or they can't get it, or you're dealing with somebody that's got that systolic of 80 and they're their diastolics in the tank and you're really worried, hey, this is a peri arrest kind of situation. I'm gonna to have to put them on BiPAP or intubate them or whatever because they're oxygen demand. They showed up with a systolic of 80. There's nothing saying if they're not profoundly tachycardic, you can't epi everybody's got low dose epi. When I say low dose, I mean like real low dose, like one or two to five mics a minute kind of low dose. And then, or you can use Levo. Levo is not near as tachycardic, doesn't have near as much of that beta one effect. Um, but can buy you time until you get those drugs on board. And yeah, and, and epi,
2: you know, epi has an inotropic effect, so so it'll it'll, it'll help um, in those situations. Well,
1: I, I think a tertiary arm of it is if you think of it in the low dose, uh, the way I was originally taught, the real low dose epi is your bronchodilatory epi, and we need the bronchodilation also. So if you think of it in that dosage. And by all means, it's going to help.
0: The 20-mics IV push is probably something you want to, or 100-mics IV push is what you want to stay away from. Just start low-dose infusion, let it kind of kick on board, get working, buy that vaso some time to really start Yeah, and and
2: hopefully by, you know, at this point, you know, a lot of our audiences, rural Mississippi and great clinicians out there with limited um, access. Hopefully at this point, you know, we've recognized a patient that's sick you started them on afterload reduction. You got them on BiPAP. and You're starting inotropes. This is when you know transfer is 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 um is 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 a process.
1: Be very mindful in an awake patient, uh, Epi especially, but any of the inotropes can cause significant nausea. So just just be aware. You've already got somebody who's teetering on the edge. Do you really want that person puking? You know, go ahead and treat. If you know you're going to go down this inotropic pathway, give them a little Zofran, a little Dramamine, something to help you fight that nausea. And I, I guess what got me to thinking is the Milrinone, um, the phosphodiesterase inhibitor. You know, some of the other one, old ones, Theophylline, aminophylline and that used to be a frontline treatment. Never use those. And, uh, yeah, well, if it ever comes back around, pre-treat your patient for nausea because somebody's going to get excited, and they're going to administer it a little fast, and the patient's going to puke. That is the 11th commandment. Write it down, chip it in stone, however you want to do it. That's Mark, well, if about. I'm
2: ever using theophilin, I'll give you a call first.
1: <laughs> Hopefully, I'll, I two years and two months, man. I'm off the books. <laughs>
0: Me and me picked up aminophilin. I have an ICU. This was a couple years back. It's the first time I'd
1: seen aminophilin in years. Both of us looked at each
0: other like, I know what that drug is. I know what it's used for. Who got it and who mixed it? Because I want to talk to them. Because I hadn't seen that one in a
1: while. Man. And that that used to be a huge concern in uh, acute exacerbations. Load them up with it. Because everybody was on theater. Load them up with aminophilin and invariably using someone was going to be new and they were going to be excitable and they were going to give it just a little too quick next thing you know you got an airway patient who's puking wow so we've talked about a
0: a few different things we talked about iotropes so i want to talk real quick
1: about the patient that you
0: have to intubate and we mentioned it before with rv failure is something you worry about if you're we talked about induction let's talk about induction agents real fast so as far as induction agents that you can use, everybody's familiar with all the RSI drugs that are around the world. What are both of y'all's preferred adjuncts for facilitating induction in the patient? You know that's in heart failure. You know they have this high risk of decompensating either post-intubation or during the process. What do y'all like to use to facilitate a good outcome if you can?
1: If there is a known component of COPD, Then I'm going to lean towards a micro-dose, push-dose pressure of epi and then etomidate rock, which is what I typically use. If there's not a known COPD component, um, I like vasopressin because it doesn't hit the heart. It hits the vasculature, and it's gone very, very quickly. So if I overdo it, it's gone. If I need to have a lot of afterload reduction, well, that'll give me just enough time to get them intubated. Now it's gone. I don't have to worry about decompensation during the intubation. Now I can address all the issues we've been talking about
2: yeah my my experience is honestly more limited in that situation. I'm spoiled with you guys bringing them in <laughs> intubated or the or the or the um our, you know ER staff or critical care staff um, already taking care of that but but i've been in the situation a few times especially during the covid pandemic where you know i was in the ICU and dealing with more pulmonary issues and i'm i, I do so i'm not an expert in that area but in those situations i used a lot of atomidate and would have epi available or libafed already going um, and certainly vasos an option but but still limited experience there so i'll let
1: I would caution folks on, I don't know, this class or subset of patients, and you know my feelings on this anyway. You know exactly where I'm going. Personally, I hate ketamine, period, end of discussion. But a lot of folks have moved towards using ketamine in their RSI. And these people are typically catecholamine depleted and ketamine will bomb them out. If they are not catecholamine depleted, and you give them a big dose of ketamine, um, I think you should load them first with glycopyrolate because you're going to get a ton of secretions, which can make the Facilitating the airway management itself. Yeah, yeah. The let's, yeah, let's make sure we get this airway and get it in a timely manner.
0: That was the point I was going to bring up. These are not the patients you're going to do delayed subcontent intubation with these are typically if we're going to do the airway management it's we're going to now there there's a subset of those patients that you may have that happen you have a known difficult airway they have tracheal malaysia there's any number of different stenosis things but for the most part that's when you call your friends in anesthesia or somebody that hey I need an extra set of hands or ENT hey come come hang out with me for a minute just so I've got at least all the resources I need in the room but if you're by yourself in a rural situation or a facilitation, you may not have those options. Be mindful, this is not something you want to prolong out if you can help it. Try to prevent again, we talked about oxygen demand. That's something you want to prevent with a heart. So you don't want to have them get hypoxic if you can help it. So that's having superglottic airways handy. That's hey, if I don't get it, what do I need to have my backups bagging them? Making sure you got the peep valve sitting there so you can create a good seal. Even if it's two people uh, that's a that's a common thing you can do really well with a bag is you can make BiPAP or CPAP out of a BVM, we do it all the time, you just don't even think about it, and have somebody creating a really good seal, you're getting that peep, hey, I didn't get the airway the first time, great, cool. Don't let the patient be a detriment for it. Bag them appropriately with a peep valve, open their airway up, and give them some peep while you're oxygenating them in the process. Well,
1: and don't forget the, I don't know, this became popular a dozen years or so ago, but the nasal cannula at 15 liters
0: passive oxygenation yeah just oxygenation. passive
1: you know just go ahead and while you're prepping everything else put your cannula on crank it up let it be soaking up while you're getting everything else ready get those receptor sites where they are yeah, leave it going it's not going to get in your way during the intubation we talked about a uh, automidates pretty
0: much it's one of my favorites too as well first sudden fentanyl's kind of coming back is a popular option if you've got somebody that you'd Worried about, okay, yeah, one dose of Atomidate is not going to really mess their kidneys up. But if you're worried about, hey, how am I going to keep somebody down or you don't have down Atomidate as an option, fentanyl and Versa can work. I would just caution again how you give it, how you administer it, what dose you're given. Most of these patients, if you're thinking about intubating them, they're not going to need a whole lot. you give giving more, more than 10 of to somebody, you know, we've always been taught if you're popping more than one cap on something, be thinking about what you're doing. Um two pops of Versed is probably enough and 100 of fentanyl man you can do a lot of work with some rock facilitating your world
2: especially without backup in that situation because those are longer acting agents you want to make sure you're pre-oxygenation you know you want to be prepared pre-oxygenate the patient like you said make sure their sats are a hundred percent and been there for a while um, because that will help greatly during the process
0: so we walked about Ionotropes, all the fun stuff. We talked about suppressors and those decompensated patients. I just want to touch briefly on end therapy. As far as, you know, they get in okay, great, you intubated them, they're in heart failure. There's all this kind of algorithms, and we talked for days about VADs and, and impellas and balloon pumps and all those fun things. I'm glad you mentioned it. When you realize somebody is sick, you're in that D category and they're decompensating, they need to get to a tertiary center is there anything you want to mention about specifically about impalas or vads or those kinds of patients
2: there's a lot to mention you know <laughs> i, th- I, I think that's a, like a question i there yeah. is, there yeah, is aren't a lot i can go on a year at least yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but you know get them here early get them here early and a little bit of background on the patient goes a long way you know w- we want to have an exit strategy that fits the patient's goals of care and the family's wishes Because there's a variety of options, you know. A, they get here, so we can go through a few of the algorithms. They get here, they're on BiPAP or intubated, they're on afterload reduction. You know, you've done a great job with that, and now we start weaning all that off. So how do I wean that off? We can just briefly talk about that. Um, I do not wean off if a patient is on five of five to ten of dobutamine. I don't begin weaning it off if their blood pressure is 120, because they're going to go right back to where they were. I'll slowly up their dose of uh, TID hydralazine or captopril, whatever they're on. And as I get that blood pressure lower, I'll check a mixed venous. Looks good. I'll 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 come off the dobutamine. Recheck a lactate and mixed venous. I'll drop the dobutamine lower. And I'll, during that whole process, I make sure that their blood pressure is low, heart rate's controlled, so that there's not you know excessive workload on the heart. So that's one way, you know. And then essentially we. We go towards, you know, the outpatient setting and guideline-directed medical th- therapy with beta blockers and ARBs or Entresto and SGLT2 inhibitors and all those drugs in the clinic. So that's, that's one thing. But, you know, our sick patients, we want to be able to cannulate them for ECMO early um, and, and recognize those patients that are, that are candidates for transplant and LVAD. So, you know, we're, we're starting the shock team here at UMC, uh, within the university and you know the, the goal of that is exactly what we've talked about is even within a tertiary care center how can we get better at early recognition because we're not perfect and um, and so we'll be implementing that but you know really it's is get the patients to us quickly and you know let us know a little bit of background and and you know that way we can begin the workup for transplant LVAD ECMO and those sorts of things. Um, because the other side of it is, you know, if you don't have an exit strategy, it, it places a lot of distress on the family if a patient's cannulated and there's nowhere to go from that. So we definitely want to select the right patients. Um, um, so that's that's kind of, you know, I just, uh, early recognition. That's that's what we need and, and, and bringing them here.
1: And ask the family their wishes.
2: You know, you, not too long ago,
1: we've got a call and, go and patients in extremis and we do all this stuff and then we go out to give the family an update before we leave and wife is like well he never wanted all that stuff done talk to these folks and figure out what do you want us to do what do you want him to do you know what is your plan do you do you think this patient your family member are they going to do you expect them to return home? Do you expect them to return to work? Yeah. You you gotta you gotta as as a as a loved one you gotta guide him in what do you ultimately want done. You have in to be situation. the
0: patient advocate and say, hey, look, let's have this conversation up front. They're hard conversations. They're never fun. Anybody from a clinical standpoint, they're not fun conversations. But at the same time, to have those conversations. So that we can get you the right information off the bat, saying, "Hey, what do you, what does this patient want? What does this patient need? How do we manage them definitively to their wishes or their desires?" So we get them the best outcome and the best solution for them,
1: and give them realistic, give the family realistic expectations. You know, it's, I expect him to come home and be able to go back to work. Okay, that's not going to happen. Yeah. If you tell them that first day. And thirty days in, they've at least come to partially accept it, if not fully accept it, as opposed to Oh yeah, yeah the they're false, gonna get the to UMC, they're gonna fix all this stuff and they'll be fine tomorrow. You know, we've we've been on in that yeah, conversation. I often before. tell
2: families, you know, one of the, <laughs> the words, the sentences I use is, Hey, we can we can do a lot to the patient, but we're not always doing it for them. Exactly. It's a very fine line. Um yeah. Um, because we have a lot of support options available but we want to make sure that we're matching it with the right patient and their wishes um, but you know that discussion only comes if we've gone through everything else we've discussed and we've right. we've gotten to this point and we've identified the patient and, and gotten them here on time and and started the the treatment early yeah. because you know I was I was reading the other day there are 300 this, this statistic is from last year, or the year before, 350,000 out of hospital arrests in the United States. And the survival is only 10% out of the hospital. Um, and, you know, we all know how many of those patients have neurologic injury. And the biggest factors are bystanders, CPR, and AEDs. But, you know, in places like Minnesota, where they've started eCPR and ECMO and, you know, things of like that, and they just survival in those patients up to 40%, which is A huge jump, and and you know that's that's where we want to get to eventually at at some point. But but first, first things first, we need to treat the patient, get to know them, recognize shock, and get them to the tertiary care center so that we can evaluate them for those options.
1: I think every bit of that begins with early recognition. Is even if it's by a bystander in the grocery store. You know, anyone recognizing something's wrong, and starting the process of, you know, we've all heard it a million times. Uh, discharge planning begins on admission. You well, know, it begins before admission. You know, you got the first step is the first step in the process, and the earlier that step is taken, the better off the patient ultimately is going to be.
0: And it's all about definitive care, right? So look, at it's patient-centered definitive care. You have to look at each individual patient, figure out, hey, what do you need? What is the right for you? What is the right decision for you? Don't want to harp on this too much because this has been really great, but early recognition, early treatment, early identification, and early admitting, hey, look, this needs to go to a tertiary care facility or somewhere that needs to be able to handle what's going on with that patient.
1: Activation of something definitive. Yes. You know
0: guys i appreciate this has been awesome it's been a great uh uh great conversation hope to have both y'all back thanks for your time today and uh
2: yeah thank you so much for the opportunity you know enjoyed it really enjoyed getting to know you guys